um, as we uh, as we love others. And so, um, if you guys have your Bibles, um, I invite you to turn with me to uh, once again First Corinthians chapter thirteen, uh, verses eight to thirteen. And uh, um, as you're turning there, um, as we've been doing for um, the past several months, um, we're going to read the whole chapter together for the last time. Um, and so I'm going to start uh, in verse one of chapter thirteen. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8. Love, therefore, never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, that too will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. What do you think lasts? Maybe to put it another way, what lasts forever? Is there anything that lasts forever? You know, I almost never quote John Piper, uh, not because I don't like him, but because he's too intense and almost everyone quotes him. Um, and it's kind of basic. But uh, since I rarely quote him, uh, I thought I'd cash in on all the times that I didn't. Uh, but in his book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life, uh, John Piper tells a story of a married, retired couple named Bob and Penny. Um, you guys might be familiar with the story. It's a very famous one. Um, so it's uh, actually kind of surprising that if, if you don't know it. But at the ages of 59 and 51, respectively, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs somewhere in the Northeast where they used to where they used to live. Now, at least at the time of the writing, this was like written like 20, 30 years ago. Uh, they might be dead. Um, now they live in Florida where, where they cruise on their 30-foot fishing boat, play softball, and collect seashells. Now, I'm sure for many of us, myself included, uh, this is not how any of us would choose to spend our retirement. It's probably not how we envision it. Um, kind of sounds boring and kind of lame. Um, but John Piper's concern uh, wasn't necessarily their retirement per se, but what they chose to do in the retirement. Uh, reflecting on the story that he shares, he says, at first when I read it, I, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream to come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator, be, pl be playing softball and collecting seashells. And he says, picture them before Jesus at the great day of judgment saying, look, Lord, see my shells. And this is what John Piper calls a wasted life. Now, I don't think John Piper is against leisure or vacation per se. Actually, knowing John Piper, he might be. He doesn't even own a TV, um, but that, again, might have also changed too. But even if seashells isn't our thing, I think we understand what he's getting at. There's something wrong if 
all that we care about is trivial stuff like seashells. If all that we spend our time on is doing dumb stuff with our friends, if the entire movement and trajectory of our lives and the stuff that we live for is spent toward pursuing this extracurricular, this getting this grade, getting into the school, getting this job, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it's not that none of these things have any significance. Um, they definitely have relative significance. Like, I, I want you guys to have jobs in the future. Um, I don't want any of you to be homeless. Um, I, I hope that some of you guys do get married. Um, now, notice that I said some. Uh, some of you guys sh should definitely just stay single for the rest of your lives. Just kidding. But these, have, these, these things have relative significance. But relative to God and eternity, they don't have ultimate nor eternal significance. And we, re we realize that in the grand scheme of things, none of these things ultimately matter. And so let me ask you guys a question. Is there anything that you have done during the quarantine that would have made lasting eternal significance? Now, I don't mean to trivialize your lives as high schoolers, especially during this difficult year, but could there be a possibility that you were only living for the short today and not for the long tomorrow? Over the course of this year, even, even as we wrap up 2020, while we might not have been collecting seashells, is it possible that we've been collecting something else that's just as insignificant as seashells? So maybe it's not seashells for you, but maybe it's some, simply the number of hours that you've logged on your phone or your computer or how many K-dramas that you've watched in your spare time or the number of photos that you in your photo collection. A wasted life is a life that was spent living for what was insignificant and temporary rather than for what was significant and permanent. But for some of us, we might be wondering, is there even anything that lasts forever? For others of us, we might be wondering, is there anything a high schooler honestly can do that will make an impact for the rest of their lives? And not just the rest of their lives, but really into the overflow into eternity. Is there something that we can do today that will actually have consequences that will actually reverberate and echo into eternity? Is it even possible to make our high school lives count? Now, would it surprise you if the answer is yes? And the answer is as mundane and ordinary as love. As we close out of this chapter on love, the Apostle Paul is going to show us that love really is the only thing that will stand the test of time and will be the only thing that will endure into the new heavens and new earth. And so the key idea for our message, our passage really for tonight is that a people centered on Jesus, the Messiah, love in the present, because love is forever and love is our future. We love in the present because love is forever and love is our future. The first point is broken down exactly that way. First, we love in the present because love is forever. Now take a look at verse eight. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now, in light of the previous verse, in light of love, bearing all things, hoping all things, believing all things, enduring all things, it's only natural that we arrive at verse eight with the Apostle Paul telling us that love never ends. It never gives up. Its light never goes out. It never fails. But to demonstrate just how permanent, enduring, and eternal love is, Paul sets up a contrast to show just how impermanent, temporary, and limited everything else is. The Apostle Paul returns back to the topic of gifts once again, spiritual gifts, that we saw back in verses 1 to 3. And he, say, and he says that they all will pass away. The gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, the gift of special revelation and knowledge will all end. 
And just to get the elephant out of the way, there's no indication in this passage that tells us that the miraculous gifts that we see in the early church have actually ceased. The Apostle Paul clearly ties the ending of these gifts to when we will actually see God face to face. And if you want to challenge me on that, chat, me with, it, chat with me after. But regardless of when the gifts end, my guess is that none of you guys have these gifts. And so the question is, what does this mean for, for, you, for us, for you and me? Your gifts, as good as they are, has an expiration date on them. Your musical talent, as good as it is, will have an ending. Your knowledge will spoil. Your maturity in this life is perishable. Your, even your spiritual insight, what you know about uh, the gospel, uh, what you know about XYZ thing, has, it has an end. It has a terminus. Whatever gift that you have been given by God has an end date, an expiration date. It will spoil eventually. In fact, even as I consider it, even my marriage will come to an end. And because they will end, for this reason, what you have, what you know, what you possess isn't and therefore cannot be the genuine mark of a genuine Christian, of a mature Christian rather. The fact that the Corinthian church, like we've talked about for so long now, the fact that the Corinthian church can be so gifted, so well-polished, so good-looking on the outside, well-versed in the scriptures, knows exactly the right thing to say in small groups, knows exactly how to push the buttons of small group leaders and pastors, grow up to going, going to Sunday school and youth group, and yet have so much internal division, demonstrate that the gifts of God don't generate genuine Christians. We can have the gifts of the Spirit of God operating in us, even mightily, and yet our inner lives can still be a complete wreck. In fact, having been in ministry for nine years and having experienced it myself and even in others, I've seen this pattern so often to conclude that an impressive outer life is almost usually half the story. An impressive outer life tends to be linked with a broken inner life. The people that we think are the strongest on the outside are in their private lives, usually the ones giving into temptation, putting themselves into morally compromising situations, discouraged, giving into bitterness, anger, and fear. What this tells us is that according to what the Apostle Paul is saying, the fact that the gifts will end, it tells us something very crucial about the Christian life. It's that external experience, outward gifting, no amount of charisma or lack thereof therefore qualifies nor disqualifies you. The point is that to God, it ultimately does not matter. What matters is what God sees in your heart, in your character. And that's, I think, in many ways, very refreshing because it means that God is not a slave to our expectations of what we think is important. God does not bend to our superficial whims. It means that there's no possible way for us to manipulate or coerce God into doing what we want by virtue of how well we do things, even though we might be able to manipulate it in front of others. It means that there is no possible way for you to earn God's favor. There is no amount of church attendance, no amount of time spent reading your Bible or praying, no amount of theology that you know. In fact, there's only one place in the Bible that actually explicitly tells us where God turns his gaze to. It's in actually in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, where Isaiah actually says this. He says, but this is the one, this is Yahweh speaking, this is God speaking. This is the one to whom I will, I will look to, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my Lord. The words here spoken by Isaiah isn't someone 
isn't, isn't God looking at the exteriors? He's looking at something far more precious and internal. Someone who is humble and contrite. Something that you can't see from the outside, but something that only God can see from the inside. If you want to get God's attention, the only requirement for you isn't to, to build uh, your resume, isn't to build the, all these gifts that you have. It is to come to the end of yourself, to surrender and to tremble at God's word. And so let me ask you, in light of what we've considered in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in light of love's superiority over against the spiritual gifts, let me ask you, what are your barometers for spiritual maturity? What are the expectations for you of what makes a mature Christian? What are we looking for in people? Are we looking for their godliness or their gifts? Are we looking for kindness or joy or only their looks or their humor? Are we looking for patience or are we looking for only efficiency? Are we, in, are we interested in people who actually submit their lives to and tremble at the word of God or someone else? I mean, isn't it so classic, so vintage of God to choose the unlikeliest person to bring about his salvation for the whole world? Should it surprise us that humanity's representative, the Messiah, whom God chooses is none other than a man who was despised and rejected by men and women he came to save? That this Messiah was the one who, according to the sight and eyes of others, was nothing to behold. Have we forgotten that the Jesus that we claim to love, the, the Jesus that we claim to serve, the Jesus that we claim to follow, that we trust in, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Isn't it so classic of God who knew that was in the heart of man to enter into his creation and die for the sins of his people? The fact that God became man should tell us very clearly what God clearly values and what men clearly value. Therefore, we shouldn't see the gifts that we or others have as proof of Christian maturity. And because they will come to an end, we also, we also shouldn't see the gifts that others have as the end goal of the Christian life either. In fact, take a look at verses 9 to 12. Verse 9 says this, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For, we, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The Apostle Paul uses three analogies to, de to demonstrate the destiny of gifts and abilities. The, the Apostle Paul compares gifts and abilities, even your possessions, to something that is partial in verses 9 to 10, childlike in verse 11, and dim in verse 12. In fact, I don't think it's a coincidence that the Apostle Paul uses the analogy of the child. The person who thinks that they know a lot and thinks that they are mature is the person whom the, the Apostle Paul calls a child. You see, spiritual maturity isn't more knowledge. It's more love. The test of spiritual maturity isn't necessarily how much you know, how much you do, how much you talk, but how much you love. And what does the Apostle Paul mean by the partial passing away? Well, like all Jews, the Apostle Paul saw time in two distinct ages, the present age and the age to come. The present age refers to the value system, the old way of living, the period of time that was characterized, that is characterized by brokenness, evil, corruption, decay, our lives today. But the age to come refers to the future period of time when the Messiah, Messiah ushers in his kingdom, 
establishes his rule and reign over, the, over all the earth and fully redeems the whole creation. And in his presence is the source of light and life. But in and through Jesus, in his death and resurrection, through the spirit, the age to come has now crashed into and broken into the present age, our age. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that we live in an unprecedented era of human history where the present age, our age today, overlaps with the age to come. We live in the convergence of two distinct ages. We live on the precipice and apex of human history where the age to come has crashed into the present age. We live at the focal point of human history. Therefore, what the Apostle Paul is saying in this analogy is that therefore, in light of this reality, in light of the reality that not only has Jesus saved us and that new birth has crashed into our present age today, in light of all of that, the question is, should we live for the world that is coming or should we live for the world that is passing away? What do you guys think? What is the answer? The world that is coming. The point of these analogies is to show us that the gifts that we have, in fact, everything that we have, I think take stock of everything that you possess and you own, the, your relationships, your possessions, your schooling, your grades, everything. Take stock of all of it and realize and take notice of the fact that everything that you have will expire. It will come to an end in order to show us that there will only be one thing that will remain, just as Caleb sung. It's love. Only one thing will remain at the end. Therefore, we live for the world that is coming and we prepare ourselves for that world that is to come. Not by how much we know, not by our grades, whatever future that we end up achieving for ourselves, it's by how we love. We practice love today in preparation for the real celebration of love that is to come. And I think this is encouraging and hopeful for all of us because how many of you have ever been jealous of what others have? Be it their gifts, their abilities, their skills, their knowledge. The Apostle Paul says that they all will pass away. But there is one thing that will not. There is one thing that will not terminate. There is one thing that will never fail us. That thing is love. Now, why is that encouraging and helpful? It's because you might not be gifted. You might not have any skill. You might not have the knowledge, but you can always love. Love, not gifts, not possessions, not what you know, not what you have. Love is the end of the Christian life. In fact, love is forever. Love is what will last into eternity. And the question is, are you building your life on what will matter? At the end of our lives, God isn't going to ask us, did you get an A plus on your test, Michael? God isn't going to ask us how many extracurriculars we took or how many friends we had or what school we got into. You know, when, when preachers say that we're going to have to give an account of our lives before God, what comes to your mind? Seashells? Based on this passage, I think the central thing that God is going to be concerned about at the end of our lives, in the totality of our lives, is how did we love the people that he has placed in our midst? Not just the easy relationships, but as we've been talking about, the particularly hard ones. We started chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians back at the end of August. We've spent roughly two and a half months on chapter 13, looking verse by verse, phrase by phrase, 
we've spent six, seven messages on love. You don't need another message on why you need to love or how you need to love. You need a message. This message exists to ask you whether or not you have committed to loving this person. So how are you doing on love? How are you doing with the person that I had you write down in your notes at the start of our series in 1 Corinthians 13? Why does this matter? Because love is the language and currency of heaven. In the new heavens and new earth, when God's kingdom reaches down and finally comes to earth, love will be the language that everyone will speak. And God summons us, his church, this youth group, this high school group, to learn the language of love and to practice the language of love in preparation for the day when God's world and our world will finally be brought together forever. In other words, as God's world meets our world, to love is not only the new way of being human, to love will be the only way of being human. Love will be our ultimate existence in the new heaven and new earth. And what this means is that you can live the life of heaven now in our life on earth. I mean, I think some of us are confused by, by creatures that say that, that tell us to live in light of eternity. Like that, admittedly, I agree with you. That sounds super abstract. But I think Paul is actually bringing it really, really close to home. We live the life of heaven now by loving others in our life on earth. For most of us, living for eternity, like I've mentioned, sounds abstract. Like what does it actually mean to live your life in light of eternity? But the Apostle Paul gives us the clearest answer. If love is what endures into eternity, a life lived for eternity then is a life lived in love. You can live, that means that, means that you can live as a citizen of heaven now, even though we still live on earth. How? love. As we love, we live into our future life as God's kingdom citizens. As we love, we bring the culture of heaven down to earth. Earth desperately needs the love of God. Your friends desperately need the love of God. That difficult person that you need to love needs the love of God. As we love, the life of our future breaks into the life of our present. And so if heaven is a culture of love, if heaven is a lifestyle of love, then we bring heaven on earth. We bring heaven to earth by how we love. We bring, we bring heaven into the present as we love others. And as we demonstrate the culture of heaven to others as we love, that's what it means to live in light of eternity. We love. And love isn't only forever now. It's also the bridge to our future. That brings us to our second point. You guys are surprised because I only have two points and I'm actually almost done with my second point. And so um, take a look at finally at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, if you are a thoughtful reader of scripture, you might be wondering how it's possible and why faith, hope, and love abide. Why, why faith, hope, and love, these three last into eternity. I mean, we can understand love continuing into the future as we've seen in verses eight to 12, but faith and hope? Why would we need faith and hope when faith eventually will give way to sight 
and hope will give way to reality. The, the Apostle Paul wants us to see something. When we see God face to face, why would our trust in him and our hope in him be abandoned? If the entirety of our Christian lives consisted of faith, hope, and love, why would that change as we enter into the new heavens and new earth? When we see God face to face, our hope and our faith in him will not go away. It will only deepen and increase and expand. But most importantly, if you think about it, what is faith, hope, and love? Faith, hope, and love, if you think about it, at the center is fundamentally looking away from yourself. Faith, hope, and love point away from ourselves and outwards toward God and others. Now, why does this matter? It's because as I studied chapter 13, prepared messages in chapter 13, listened to Peter and Leighton's messages on chapter 13, as you listen to messages on chapter 13, maybe perhaps you, but I, I definitely couldn't help but come to this overwhelming realization that I have failed to love in all these distinct ways. Like I, I got impatient this morning. I was rude a couple of days ago. I did not hope the best of people just yesterday. In fact, looking at this passage, I was confronted with how much I failed to love God, Megan, my friends, and even you guys. But the point of faith, hope, and love is that my capacity and ability to love others doesn't come from within me, but outside of me. And the point of chapter 13 isn't merely the call for us to be better. It is actually to look and to set our gaze upon someone else as we look at chapter 13. I think I've, I think I've shared this story with you guys before uh, about Corey Ten Boom. But uh, if you guys aren't familiar with the story or if you guys just didn't attend that youth group, which is entirely possible, uh, Corey Ten Boom was a Christian who lived in Amsterdam during World War II. And she and her family had helped Jews from Nazi, uh, from, uh, helped Jews from the Nazis by hiding them in her home. And her entire family was eventually caught and imprisoned in a concentration camp. Several, several of her family members died during the imprisonment. And Corey was eventually released because of, her, because of an administrative error. But the rest of her girls in her age group weren't so fortunate as they were sent to gas chambers to die. Years after her release at a church service in Munich, Germany, Corey saw a former Nazi guard who patrolled the shower room that she had uh, occupied. And a flood of memories entered Corey's mind. Let me tell her story in her own words. She says this, suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister's pain blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. And the, the, the former Nazi guard said to me, how grateful I am for your message. He said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Bloomingdale, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled within me, I saw the sin of, him, of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for even more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. And she says, I tried to smile. I, I struggled to raise my hand. I, I, could, I could not. I felt nothing not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. 
And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened because from my shoulder along my arm and through, through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And this is what Corey reflected upon. She said, and so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. The point of 1 Corinthians 13 ultimately isn't a, a passage, a, a chapter to, a, to, to beat you down on all the different ways that you fail to love. The ultimate goal of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is meant to take you into the very heights of Jesus Christ himself. Love isn't just something that we do for others because fundamentally love is something that has been first done for us. Because when we look at all 13 verses of chapter 13, we aren't supposed to see ourselves in the passage. We're supposed to see someone else. In fact, we can rewrite this entire chapter and replace love for Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. He, He isn't irritable or resentful. He doesn't hold things over our heads. He doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus never gets excited over sin, but he is brokenhearted at how much it destroys us. Jesus bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. As we come to verse 8, his love will never end. He will never give up. He will never collapse under the burden and weight of your sins and your sorrows. And that is the reason why when you fail to love, he is the one who carries you. This is why even though faith and hope abide, love is the greatest. It's because we will come face to face with a God who is love, Jesus himself. It is to look away from ourselves. In fact, if you think about it, the entire duration of our lives on earth and heaven will be looking away from ourselves and looking face to face with Jesus Christ. Love isn't even a Christian duty. Love is the Christian destiny. And Jesus is our future. And we shall fully know him just as we've been fully known. And so the question is, what will you do with love? What will you do with the people that you've been called to love? The difficult people in your life. Love is forever. Love is our future. Therefore, we love today. We love tomorrow. We love in the present. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that there are so many ways in which we have failed to love. Even today, I'm sure many of us have, have can, can count um, not only on both of our hands, but maybe perhaps on more hands, um, all the different ways that we have failed to love others and ultimately have failed to love you. And so, Father, I, I do pray for our, our precious high schoolers that having spent seven, eight, seven, six, seven messages on love, that it would not be merely something that they had just heard as the continual theme of, of their entire history at Lighthouse, that they need to love people. You know, God, I pray that they would actually take to heart the kind of things that they've heard 
the kind of things that they've learned these past six, seven weeks, and that they would actually put it to practice. And that as they put it to practice, they actually live the life of heaven on earth. And so God, I do pray for our high schoolers. I do pray that, and I, I God, we, I, I totally recognize, Father, the, the, the challenges that our high schoolers do face with difficult relationships. People that sin against them, people that betray them, people that violate um, them. Love is hard, we recognize. And we recognize that left to ourselves, we, we would be doomed. We would always fail, prone to anger. But we, that's why we recognize and, and, and locate not, love not within ourselves, but within Jesus himself, who is love, who gave his life up for us. And in so doing, enables us and gives us the power, the energy, the desire, the motivation to love. And so, Father, I do pray for, again, our high schoolers. I pray that you would help them to see not just the importance of love, but the goodness of love. To see that in so doing, that as they love, they actually imitate the God who is love. And so, Father, I do pray for our high schoolers. pray that you would help them um, to have a good time with small groups, to have open and honest discussions about uh, where they're at and even how they've been uh, apprehending your love for them in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. You guys are...